All right, good morning. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, if uh, you don't know me. Um, and we're just going to start right off um, right here in Timothy chapter 5. We're continuing on our series um, called Charge. We're going through the book of 1 Timothy. And uh, we've got a lot of verses to cover today, so I'm just going to kind of knock them out here and we'll get right to work. So chapter 5, if you've got your Bibles, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, and treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Command these things as well, so they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so they may care for those who are really widows." Well, that's like 16 verses, and, I, and we're not going to get through all of them today. Some of it does kind of read like um, qualifications for a social welfare program um, or you know, some sort of order of, uh, of widows or, um, or nuns or something like that. But um, there's a few key things as we continue to study um, in the book of 1 Timothy that are important for us to focus on today. And that is, this is a letter that is written by Paul to a young pastor, Timothy, Sam talks a lot about being a young pastor. I actually am a young pastor. I don't know why he talks about being a young pastor. He's a lot older than I am. So, um, but, uh, you know, Timothy's kind of an inexperienced guy. And, and so Paul wants to lay out what the characteristics of his ministry should look like, um, what the church in Ephesus should really look like. And he starts out, First Timothy, going through some, some doctrinal truths and, and, and telling Timothy, you're going to have to contend for these truths you're going to have to preach these. You're going to have to um, uh, protect the flock from, from wolves that want to come in with false teaching. And, and so there's this concept that here at Damascus Road that we've adopted called gospel truth. And that's that we hold to the word of God and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we hold that as, as important. And then Paul, throughout the rest of the letter, kind of breaks down some practical implications of what the ministry is going to look like in terms of how it engages the world, um, what leadership is going to look like, and some real practical um, things of what the mission of the church is going to be. 
And, and here at Damascus Road, one of our other family values is, is gospel mission. It, it's that we're not just here to be here, but we're here to spread the gospel throughout the world. And, and he tells Timothy, okay, you know gospel truth, and you're on a gospel mission, but you can't forget that you're part of a gospel community. And so um, he reminds Timothy that, that really... His role doesn't just stop at preaching the truth, and it doesn't just stop at leading a mission, but that he's a member that's to serve in God's family. And this passage hit me because I'm one of those guys that loves to debate doctrine, and I love um, to, uh, to argue theology. Um, I love to be a fortress with cannons just firing out gospel truth all over the place. And just who cares who gets hurt? And, and I love being on mission because, you know, I have a marketing degree and I love getting a message out there. And I love the idea of the church um, engaging the world with the truth of the gospel. And so for me, being a younger pastor coming into church leadership, I'm awesome at yelling at people. And sometimes I can motivate some of you guys to show up to some things and, and do some things. But for the most part, I've done a pretty poor job of, of actually just... just being part of your family. And, and, and that's, that's been hurt too of, you know, I came to Marysville, called to Marysville, and, and, and I always thought it was going to be a temporary deal. And then God said, no, this is where you're called to. And you're not called to, to just a place uh, and to a mission and to uphold the truth, but you're called to a specific group of people to serve and to love. And Paul's telling Timothy that the church is a family, that the people of God are identified as part of a family, not by their birth or their genealogy, but by their new birth in faith in Jesus Christ. And, and that the family isn't going to be just a loose social uh, association that you can kind of freely come in and out of, or even a group of affinity that you might choose to be with. If you've been part of the family of God for any time, you realize you're in with family members that you wouldn't otherwise choose to be family members with. That there's people that, that are difficult to deal with at times. Sometimes you're the difficult person to deal with. Um, I'll be honest, I'm a difficult person to deal with almost all the time. And it's difficult because um, when you become part of the family of God, you're reconciled to your Heavenly Father. So we, we have God as our Father, but, but you come in as an individual, you're saved as an individual, but, but you're brought in to a group of people. Um, and, and this new family is really supposed to be the relationship that you hold primary above, above other relationships. And, and sometimes that, that even means that that kinship and that affection and that duty that you have amongst God's people, sometimes it almost feels stronger than, than even your, your own flesh and blood at times that maybe aren't believers, um, or, or that you have, have more conflicts with. And the people of God, His church, they are a family. And unfortunately, just like our, our biological families, sin enters the church. And, and it kills individuals. It, it kills relationships. It kills families. And sometimes it even destroys churches. And so... Sin corrupts relationships and it, it creates divisions and it leaves countless hurt and vulnerable people that need to be cared for. And how we as a family corporately 
and how we as individual members of the family deal with sin is, is really a gospel issue. Because if we are a family that's been redeemed by the blood of Christ and, and we are, uh, have God as our Father, then the way we deal with each other should be different than the way that, that the world deals with each other's problems and with each other's issues. And so Paul is telling Timothy that when challenges and issues and, and, and really what, what the group of God's people look like together, um, that, that when he's leading that and he's a part of that, that he's not supposed to think of himself like a CEO and he's not supposed to think of himself like a general or like a coach. Um, and, and as a pastor and as a leader, we, we do serve those functions at times. But the reality is, He's first and foremost a member of the family of God. And he's to interact with the church just like Jesus did. Where he's loving, he's concerned, he's engaged with the people, and he's a sacrificial son and brother to the people. And so when we talk about being the church, we talk about being the family of God, and, and in the next month, in, in two or three months, we're going to be laying out a vision for what the next, hopefully, year or two or three look like. When we think about all the things that we have accomplished or all the things that we want to accomplish, we have to remind ourselves that the health and the success of us as individuals, for pastors and for our church, isn't going to be measured or displayed exclusively by how pure our doctrine is or how successful we are about various stages of our mission, although those are both very important. But really, our success um, as a family, as a church, is how, uh, how we deal with our relationships and how we deal with our responsibilities. And how those are defined and lived out is really going to make or break us as a church. So the two things that we're going to talk about today and that I want you guys to have in your head today are relationships and responsibilities. And so, Paul starts off, chapter 5, verse 2, getting into the details of family relations. He says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, and younger women like sisters in all purity. See, family and church relationships should be characterized by mutual respect, by patience, by intimacy, by care, by love, by humility. But most of the time, uh, our relationships tend to be defined by pride or mistrust or division, and sometimes even lust gets in the way of relationships. And, and so as a young pastor, Timothy's called to lovingly confront sin in people that are of various ages and various genders um, with the hope of repentance and reconciliation and restoration and making the family stronger. And so Paul gives him these guidelines for how to navigate difficult relational situations while being both respectful to the individual while also being respectful and holding true to the truth. And so when he says in the beginning, the first relationship here, do not rebuke an older man but encourage him as you would a father. See, Paul had told Timothy just a few verses earlier to let no one despise you for your youth. And so you, you hear that, and me as a young guy, I'm like, yeah, nobody's going to pick on me for being a young guy or being inexperienced. Well, Paul's reminding Timothy here, don't be prideful about being youthful either. 
that you need to engage older men with humility. But the problem is, people in my generation, and, and maybe every generation, and I'll just, I'll just speak for myself, quite honestly, I believe history started the day I was born. I have little or no concept of what happened before, the sacrifices that people have done beforehand. And so um, our generation kind of comes together and, and we act um, and function as our generation is the only one that's relevant. So older people may have some wisdom and truth, but come on, we're the, we're, we're the new people on the block. Um, you know, I'd say the new kids on the block, but that's really a long time ago. So, you know, we're, we're the new kids on the block and we're here and, and, and we have all the answers because all of human history has led up to our arrival and, and, and so we don't engage anybody with, with any sort of humility. And you can add in education to that. Um, you know, uh, I, I have a degree from the University of Washington, and, and as soon as I set foot on campus, I automatically had more formal schooling than my dad did. And so I reminded him of that on a pretty regular basis as I would come home for holidays, and he would write me another check for tuition and books. And um, then you add in a position of maybe some authority or power where you have a 30-year-old guy that gets to preach in front of a church, and, and, and that's a recipe for arrogance. To have a little bit of knowledge to be dangerous, and a little bit of position to be prideful. But that's not the way it's supposed to look, because what ends up happening is, is when you're prideful and arrogant, you treat people without the respect and dignity that they deserve. And the Bible's clear that we're to honor our father and mother. It was important enough that God put it in the Ten Commandments. And even when you're confronting sin, younger men are to treat older men in the church respectably, even if you don't deserve respect at times. Being verbally harsh or seeking to embarrass or defame is absolutely contrary to the love that we're supposed to have as a family. And that doesn't mean that the sin of older men is, is accepted or ignored or, or even hidden. In the weakness of sin, older men should be encouraged and strengthened by younger men seeking to restore and maintain the honor and dignity. This is a really difficult concept for me because about 18 years ago, my family found out that uh, my grandfather had been abusing my sister over the course of several months and um, that it had ended four years earlier, but that my grandmother had also helped to cover it up because she wanted to make sure that the relationship within our family would, wouldn't be damaged by it. And um, as a 12-year-old boy, I... I basically just acted as though my grandfather had died and that he wasn't even a member of my family and didn't deserve um, any, any grace or affection or, or anything. And, and uh, my parents um, handled the situation very well. Uh, they both loved Jesus and, and, um, and, and loved my sister and I, and they protected us, and they removed us from, from his, his family and his influence um, uh, for several years, and, and there was never an issue that way. As my grandparents got older, uh, my grandmother started to have health complications. Um, my, um, and then uh, my grandfather and, and um, my parents um, were the closest relatives in the area. The rest of the family was in Nebraska. And, and so they, they, they started helping him, driving to doctor's appointments, working him through power of attorney issues and selling houses and, and, and all that. And, and, and this was in my teen years and into my, even into my 20s. And, and, and I just was so angry and enraged with my parents. Why would we help these people that had attacked our family? And, and, and I asked my mom that on a pretty regular basis. I said, I don't want anything to do with these people. And, and, and I wanted nothing to do with these people. They were dead. 
And my mom said, well, the Bible commands us to honor our father and mother, and it doesn't say if, only if they're honorable. And I was like, okay, yeah, great, Mom, but I mean, this is a different situation. We, we deserve an exception. And she said, yeah, but Christ died for us when we were absolutely dishonorable and sinful, and, 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 and he, didn't, he gave us grace when we didn't deserve it. And um, I also I didn't talk to my grandfather for, for uh, over a decade or more, and it's only been in the last three years that I've had an opportunity to, to get to confront him with, with what the effect of, of his sin against our family meant for me and, and, and where I hoped his heart was. But it wasn't until I was in a place where I would let go of some bitterness where I could engage him respectfully with a true hope that it led to reconciliation. Maybe not restoration. I don't let him hang out with my kids. But that my hope for him is that he's saved and not that he's condemned anymore. And, and that's, how, that's how we're to engage older men. And so older men, I have to ask you this morning, are you respectable? Are you honorable? Are you an example for the younger men? And younger men, do you approach older men with humility and with the respect and dignity that, that they, whether they don't deserve it or not, that you're commanded to give them? Well, Paul talks to Timothy about younger men and treating them as brothers. And um, I didn't have any brothers. I had a younger sister. Um, so when I went to UW, I joined a fraternity, and um, they called us brothers. And uh, I was like, okay, so this is what brothers are about. So basically, we treat each other like garbage. Uh, we uh, yell at each other and constantly tear each other down. Um, we compete politically for various offices and positions of power within the house. Um, and uh, if you're a young guy, uh, the older brothers uh, basically treat you like trash for a year because they got treated like trash when they were freshmen. And so then the next year comes along, and it's your turn to treat the freshmen like trash. And I was thinking, okay, this is a pretty good system, you know, it's survival of the fittest, and, and you're justified by how well you can perform. But that's not the gospel, is it? We're not justified by how well we perform. We're not justified by our good works. We're justified in Christ and what His good works were for us. And so now I'm part of, part of another group of brothers, um, of, of elders, and so when, when I'm struggling through writing a sermon the much older brother, Sam, can write uh, uh, an email to me and say, hey, you know, I, I think that you have some things you might need to work on here. And, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I can take that lovingly because he's not trying to ensure that I go through equal pain that he went through. He's gone through some pain, I, I, I hope or think, and, and he's hoping that I would avoid that. And the problem is, is that a lot of younger men, sorry, a lot of older men and older brothers they, they let the younger brothers just walk through minefields blindly. When they should be on the other end saying, no, don't go there. Don't, don't go down that path. There's explosions. It goes badly. I've lost a limb. I have scars. And, and, and we don't share our pain. We don't share the trials that we've gone through. And I think in some regards it's because we're ashamed. That, that we're either ashamed, and so we'll just let a younger brother go through the same pain that we went through because that's easier than telling him, you know what, I went through some really hard stuff. I had years of rebellion. I had years of sin. 
And so when a younger brother comes to us, we, we just let him go about his way. When we're supposed to be there, helping him avoid those scars and hoping that we can warn him in such a way that he doesn't have to go through the same things. And so older brothers, older men, I have to ask you to spend some time thinking about what are your scars? What are your hurts? What, what, what are the areas of, of past sin in your life that, that, that maybe, maybe God intended to make sure that the younger brother didn't go through the same thing? And younger brothers, that requires you guys to approach the older brothers with humility and actually seek out their counsel and not think that, oh, he, he, he made some bad choices, but, but I'm the young buck. I know I can make it through this minefield with no issues. I don't, in fact, I don't even think there's even mines there. I'll just dance and skip around. So younger brothers, you guys need to seek the counsel of the older brothers. Paul turns his attention to the relationship between um, young men and older women. He says, older women should be as mothers. And Paul knows treating older women as mothers will resonate with Timothy because he was raised to love Jesus by his grandmother and by his, by his mother. And um, so he knows that mothers are to be respected and listened to and loved. And that doesn't mean that they're exempt from sin or any sort of pastoral counseling or correction. But what it does mean is that when it's necessary and absolutely necessary to admonish an older woman, that we should do so as an adult son would with an erring mother. And what that means is that we don't pick petty differences to argue with our moms about. And, uh, you know, I'm reading these verses, and I was even uh, talking to my mom about it as I was driving to go work on this, and I was just hit with the fact that I'm a jerk to my mom a lot. And, um, yeah, I know, that's, that's awesome. Um, but, <laughs> that, 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 no, I, my journey over the last few years has been, I got the gospel truth part. And, and man, and I love that gospel truth, and there's doctrinal distinctives that I, I think are essential to understanding the fullness of God's grace. And there's ways of doing church, I think, that engage us um, uh, on a mission to reach others with the gospel. And so my mom, who's been a faithful Christian for her whole life, named me Christopher, hoping I would be a bearer of Christ and show other people the gospel. Well, all of a sudden, she's not smart enough and doesn't know enough about doctrine. And so I'm going to go home and pick fights with her on a regular basis about little ticky-tacky doctrinal issues. And I'm just a jerk to my mom. And it doesn't mean she's not wrong. It just means that... (laughs) It just means that you don't pick fights with your mom for no reason. And so next weekend I'll be home and hopefully she'll hear this on the podcast and remind me that I shouldn't be picking fights with her about things like that. But no, we're supposed to remember, if you're going to engage the woman who, who gave birth to you and raised you, that you better have a good reason and you better not forget that you're part of the same family and, and that you're her son. So we should treat older women with respect and, and definitely with humility. This last one on the uh, relationships is, is kind of a fun one. I actually say that with a little bit of trepidation. Younger women should be treated like sisters in all purity. See, the key phrase here is all purity. And that's conforming to all of God's moral law and everything that he would have in that, but the focus is specifically on, on sexual purity. 
And if you look at the Old Testament, brothers in the Old Testament took their sister's sexual purity very, very seriously. You, you can look at Genesis 34, um, and uh, one of Jacob's daughters, Dinah, um, got, got raped by a man named Shechem. And uh, two of her brothers went and killed him and killed his entire village to protect the honor of their sister. And the protection of sexual purity in sisters in Christ should be of equal concern to us, particularly as Christian men. That we should see young women as our sisters. And Paul's instructions, really, they, they, they couldn't be more vivid. That the reality is, if a man sexually sins with a Christian woman, it's committing spiritual incest. It's reprehensible. And the bottom line is that if a young woman's not your bride, she's your sister. And that's what that relationship should look like. And there's a reason that this is in here. And, it's, and I believe that Paul's instructing Timothy regarding his relationships with young women last because these relationships have the greatest danger for destroying his ministry and destroying his witness of the gospel more than any other relationship. You can be a jerk to your mom and they'll still let you come up and preach on Sundays. But pastors can't compromise or disqualify their ministry by having inappropriate relationships with a sister in Christ. It's not a negotiable thing. Pastors are to lead young women from sin and not deeper into sin. And in the past year, as I've been you know, contemplating what my role in ministry is going to look like and, and, and have been studying church planting and, and, and trying to get involved in, in other ministries, um, my heart has been broken by two particular instances of pastors in just the past year that sinned with younger women, that destroyed their family, disqualified their ministry, and has harmed their church. And I'll just share them with you briefly. One is a young pastor, a little bit older than me, at a church that's really just like ours on the other, other side of the country, they're a, a young church, um, they're a growing church, they're, they're, the, they're, they're the new church in the area, they're, they're experiencing some success, and um, he slept with his young, married, female assistant, and now he's divorced, and she's divorced, and his church, um, with their rock star pastor, is meandering around in the wilderness on their own, and it's a year later... He stopped going to accountability meetings. Uh, he married the woman he was cheating with, and now he's planning another church. He's disqualified. And it's not just the young pastors, though. Like, this is something that pastors need to be reminded of over and over and over through the ends of their ministry. Otherwise, they can fizzle out at the end. Um, a church that I'm very close with had a pastor of 30 years who, whose wife had a degenerative disease for 20 years. And in the last year, he started having an emotional affair with a young woman who's the age of his adult daughters who he had been counseling for the last year. And so now, his sons and daughters have to take care of their mother. He's disqualified from ministry. He's skipping his accountability meetings. And 30 years of fruitful ministry aren't just tarnished, they're stained. And so 400 people 
are questioning, are we even saved? Is the gospel even real? You know, but, and and the, the challenge is, our relationships matter because they say something about the gospel. They say something about whether we're redeemed and whether we're part of God's family. And, and that if our relationships don't permeate with the gospel, that's going to lead to sin. It's going to rip us apart as individuals, as a family, and as a church. And, and more than just relationships, we're also given a responsibility to each other. And we don't like to talk a lot about responsibility, but as members of God's family, we have a responsibility to meet the needs of others, and especially those that have been left alone or are those, are those casualties of sin. God cares so much about the most vulnerable among us. And Paul makes it clear how our responsibility to those people is to be divided within the church family. That there's a responsibility that we share corporately, and that there's a responsibility that each one of us has as individuals. God is a loving Father, and He has great concern for the most vulnerable. He says so in Psalm uh, 68. He says, He is a Father of the fatherless, and He's a protector of widows. And He commands us to act the same way. James 1.27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. And so, you know, we have these next 14 verses on, on issues dealing with widows, and it's easy for us to say, yep, yeah, widows, we'll take care of them. But in our English word, that specifically means a husband who's dead and a woman that hasn't remarried. But the Greek word here simply means having suffered loss, being robbed, or simply being left alone. And that meaning doesn't describe how the woman's left alone. And it, it identifies the condition of being alone. And that that's broad enough cover death, of course, but divorce, desertion. And those last two are difficult because there's sin involved from one or, or, or even from both of the parties. And so when we're looking at these instructions on how widows are to be cared for, we need to realize that sin is a widow maker and that in our culture, really the, the, the challenges that we have in our society is, is single moms that have been divorced or deserted by men who won't take responsibility. And the number of single mothers is growing each and every year. In 2005, there was 13.6 million single parents. 84% of them were single moms. Of that, 44% were divorced, 22% separated, 33% had never been married in the first place, and only 1% were widowed with their deceased husband. And today, um, for the first time, every new child being born, 40% of them are born without a dad. That's the highest percentage that it's been in America. It's actually 55% in Sweden and it's 66% in Iceland. I have no idea where the guys in Iceland are because there's nowhere to go. You're on an island. Like, but it's, uh, it's funny, but it, it, it's sad. And we have a corporate responsibility to people that are hurt and vulnerable. It says, verse 3, Honor widows who are truly widows. Skipping on to 5 and 6. She who is truly widow is left alone 
and has set her hope or set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayer night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Well, that's challenging here because what Paul's saying is that the elders and the church is going to have to use a little bit of discernment and even a really nasty word in our society, discrimination, to decide who they're going to help. And that's difficult because the church family isn't supposed to act blindly like a social welfare system that freely grants support to anyone that expresses need. But it says that the kingdom's time and energy and resources are to be primarily used for those who are truly widows based on both their need and even their godliness. And so if, if, a, if a widow or someone who just needs help or support is, is um, going to be helped by the church, they need to be truly needy. They need to be someone who's actually been left all alone with no immediate or extended family that can provide the same care that they require. Because hopeless as they may be without any family support, they're, they're very much single. And they're left in this permanent condition of being forsaken without any resources. It's the responsibility of God's family to fill this void. And, and even if, if there's people that have been left alone with financial mean, uh, means, the church should still provide that spiritual and emotional support that comes from us being the family of God. And then there's another part that's, that's difficult to, to kind of wrestle with, and that is that they need to be truly godly. That they fix their hope on God and God alone. That they have a genuine faith in God, and they're not just hoping that the church will bail them out for for their sinful lifestyle. They, 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 they not only seek care and provision from the church, but they worship and commune with Heavenly Father. It says night and day, which is a Jewish idiom that means constantly or all the time. Simply put, they're just faithful people to God and their family. And uh, they don't use their status as a victim, as an excuse, to abandon their faith and pursue their own desires. And Verse 13 talks about that. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips, busybodies, saying what they should not, for some have already strayed after Satan. And that's difficult, because the church isn't supposed to spend kingdom resources on a sinful lifestyle. Like, I've never, as treasurer, written a check for clear plastic heels so someone can go back to work, right? But at the same time, we're, we're lost and stuck in our sin, aren't we? And so we're called to pray for those people and love those people and maybe the consequences of their sin leads them to repentance and, and when it does, that we're there with open arms to welcome them and, and to, to help them and to, to be that family. And, and while the church is corporately called to support godly widows, it's the charge of each individual Christian to live out the gospel and to fulfill the responsibilities for their own relatives. Verse 4, we'll do verse 4 and verse 8. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So he starts out saying, it's a good thing to provide for your family. It pleases God. And he follows it up with verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. See, individuals, our membership in the family of God is supposed to be paramount, but it's not the exclusion of our actual 
relatives. The church has a responsibility to those that are left alone, but it's not their job to do the job that we don't want to do. And Paul has choice words for Christians who don't live up to this basic responsibility to love your family because even pagans and even the animal kingdom gets this concept. Back then in the Greco-Roman world, they had a dowry system set up to provide for the financial support of widows. The Greek philosopher Philo, in speaking about the care for loved one, notes, when old storks become unable to fly, they remain in their nests and are fed by their children. Even animals get you're supposed to take care of your family. William Barclay writes, It was ancient Greek law that people were both morally and legally obligated to support family members. Those that didn't meet their responsibilities lost their civil rights. See, we don't have a moral or a legal obligation to our families anymore. Our culture is the opposite. We are a culture that loves being individuals, and we care absolutely about our rights more than anything else. We have a bill of rights, but we don't care as much about our responsibilities. There's no government document that says bill of responsibilities. And people in general, and honestly men especially, we do all that we can to avoid responsibility or avoid inconvenience. And young men live with their mothers and their mother's taking care of them for longer and longer. People are waiting longer to get married. People are waiting longer to have children and, and to postpone anything that might be inconvenient. And we live with a sense of entitlement that we have a right to pursue our own temporary selfish happiness rather than a sense of duty and sacrifice to those around us. See, you're called to a specific people. And if you're a man, it means that God's method for providing for your family is you. And it's easy for all of us to say, well, I die for my family. Because very likely you're never going to be called to actually do that. It's a lot more difficult to live sacrificially day by day for your family. To provide for those that God has entrusted you. And my fear is that when we talk about all these responsibilities, that it just becomes this burden that's just another set of rules that we all want to check off. And, and, and we lose the gospel and think that we're justified by how well we're fulfilling these responsibilities. When the fact is we're justified by nothing else than that Christ died for us. And that because of that newness of life that we have as new creations in Christ, our hearts should be stirred to care for our family and those around us. Because when we don't, I think honestly, we're, we're creating more widows. And... When I was studying this, I, I, was, I was just hit really hard because uh, this is something I've really failed at in the last couple months. Uh, a couple months ago, I think about two months ago, my wife found out that we're having some complications with, with her pregnancy, with, with our pregnancy, and, and that um, the baby wasn't growing, that she had some health complications that were um, making it more challenging, and uh, we found that out on Tuesday, and you know, I came home and, and we talked about it a little bit and I woke up the next morning and I was like, all right, box check, talked to the wife about it, you know, saw where she's at and went about my business of, of being a, a busy husband and father throughout the next uh, few days and we come to Saturday and 
our paths are kind of crossed. I don't know how your Saturdays are. Sometimes it seems like we're all going in different directions. And it comes to the end of the night, and um, her and I are supposed to go to a, uh, a dessert for uh, Pilgrim, the new, um, uh, new mission group that we're working with here at Damascus Road. And uh, I'm like, well, we're going, right? She's like, no, I don't feel up to it. I'm like, what do you mean you don't feel up to it? It's going to take just as much energy as anything else, blah, 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 blah. And, and I was just kind of a jerk. I said, well, you know, no, I'm, you know, I'm a pastor at Damascus Road. I have to go to this thing, so I'm going. And, and I left her at home. And I, and I come to this thing, and, and I'm all excited. Not really. I, I still didn't feel very great. And I, I show up, and we watch this video about widows and orphans in Africa that are just destitute and, and have no help. And my heart, there's something going on in my heart and my head saying, oh, man, I just wish there'd be somebody there to care for that widow and care for those orphans. But I, I'm so far away, I can't really do anything. And then I realized I left a widow at home. And so I had to drive home and I had to get on my knees and tell my wife that I had sinned against her and that I hadn't provided for her and carried the burden that she had been carrying for the last week emotionally for this trial and asked her to forgive me. Thankfully she did. And I asked her, well, how how did you feel this week? And she said, you know, I felt like a single mom. I was dealing with this all by myself. So men, if you're not careful, you can make a widow each and every day even if you're in the same room, even if you're paying every bill, because our responsibility is deeper than just material needs. So I need to ask you, when was the last time you cared more about your responsibilities than you did your rights? Is your heart stirred for those here in the family? Our families are also supposed to be defined by service that and there's plenty of verses here. The next section from, from verses 9 to, to really 15 is talking about what it looks like for widows to serve. And, and the, the key principle there is that even for those of us that are broken and those of us that, that are hurting and have suffered pain, that God's not done using us for the gospel. That he's not done using us to serve his family. And so wherever you're at today, you, you need to know that you're loved by God and his family, and that you can still serve and contribute to his family. And I'll close with this. We can get all excited about what these relationships look like. We can get burdened by all the responsibilities we have. And and while our, our relationships and our responsibilities will define us as a people in some regards, we're defined by so much more than that. Mormons and Muslims can preach about the virtues of a spiritual family. And pagans and animals know that that there's a responsibility to their relatives. But what sets us apart is the cross. That we're a family brought together by the cross because it's where Jesus, God, came as a man to earth to reestablish the broken relationship that we have because of sin with the Father and with each other. And the cross is where He takes up our responsibility for our sin and our brokenness and He carries it. Dare I say joyfully. Carries it. Not out of burden or duty, but because He loves us. And He doesn't just demonstrate it by going to the cross that 
that really his last two acts of ministry on the cross show this. The last two things he did on the cross was to tell a thief, a sinner, who was separated from God, who was also being crucified, who had put his faith in Jesus, that today you'll be with me in paradise. Today you will be restored in relationship with your Father. You'll be home with your Father. And then the last thing he said with his mother and his younger brother, brother in Christ, his his disciple, John, was to make sure that John would care for his widowed mother. That while he is on the cross, bearing the full burden and responsibility of our sin, his mind and his heart cared that one more person would be in relationship with the Father and that one family member would be properly cared for. That's huge. If you're not a Christian, if if you're saying this family of God, I don't even know if I'm a part of that, you need to know that you need to come to the cross because Jesus loves you just as much as he loves that thief and even as much as he loves his own mother. He wants relationship with you. He takes responsibility for all of your brokenness, all of your rebellion. He says, give it to me. I've nailed it to the cross. And so, to close the service, we're going to get up. We are going to give our tithes and our offerings, remembering that we have a responsibility corporately to our church family, and that we need to have the resources as a church to be able to serve those that are in need, that we're corporately called to care for. And we're going to come up and we're going to take communion. That it's Christ's blood in the cup. That it's the bread is Jesus' broken body. And we're going to share this meal like a family at the dinner table. Sharing this meal of reconciliation to God and each other. And you know what? We're actually, on Sunday morning, going to stand up and we're going to sing out of our mouths. Like, sound's going to come out of our mouths when we sing. Because we're going to sing to our Father as we anxiously await our family reunion with Him in heaven. So I'm going to pray. Randy's going to come up. And we'll sing.